Our sermon text this morning is Luke 21, verse 37, through chapter 22, verse 6. Luke 21, 37, through 22, 6. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to, to, to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Father, as we uh, begin to look at the account of uh, the beginnings of the betrayal of Christ, uh, Lord, I pray that you would give us spiritual strength that will be practical in our lives today and throughout this week. Father, I pray that anyone who uh, doesn't know you would tremble before your word, tremble before the Son of God who came to save sinners, those who can't save themselves. Father, I pray that you would do the work that only you can do, that you would apply this text to the specifics of our own spiritual battle. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We have all experienced the insanity of sin. We have watched it most clearly in other people's lives because we're often blind to the insanity of sin in our own life. But even in our own life, especially if you're a believer and you've been given the Holy Spirit and there's conviction of the Spirit, you also can see the insanity of sin in your own life. We've all participated in some degree with betrayal. We can look at the account of Judas, one of the twelve, betraying Christ. And while our jaws ought to hit the ground at the most insane, wicked act maybe that's ever been committed, we should tremble because we can see, even in our own lives, the way we can deny the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, if you're a Christian, you're in a battle 
You're in a spiritual battle against the old man and the remaining sin in your life. But we've seen the insanity of sin, have we not? Have you not watched an adultery from afar and seen the destruction and the pain and the suffering in so many people's lives? And yet, the two involved seem to feel often justified. It seems to make sense. Maybe you have struggled with drug addiction or drunkenness. Maybe you have watched someone else struggle with this. And there's a sense where you just want to reason. You just want to reason and say, you're ruining your life. Don't you see? Destruction follows. This is not a plan for the future. Good does not come from this, and yet the struggle remains difficult. Because sin clouds our reason and sin entices our desires. And our desires seem to overtake what makes sense. Or you look at suicide and you see the destruction, the pain, the hurt, all that is not accomplished in suicide. And from afar, you sit there and say, how could they have ever been deceived into thinking that this was a good idea for themselves or for anyone else? And we could go on and on. We could look at gluttony. What are the benefits of overeating long term? For you or other people in your life? Or how about the idolatry of work? You know, some of my say, I'm a workaholic. They kind of wear it as a badge of honor while the family is destroyed and relationships are destroyed and the church body is neglected and it doesn't make sense. We have all watched and are participated in the insanity of sin in some way or Another, even though Apostle Paul says, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but the very thing I hate, that I do. He wants to do something else, but he sees sin that is inside him bring about actions. And he says, who will rescue me from this body of death. And then he goes into chapter 8. It's the Lord Jesus Christ who will rescue him. 
There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You've been given the Spirit to put to death the deeds of the flesh. There is hope. But never underestimate the power of sin when you give yourself to it. And so as we look at this account, last week we looked at all that was said about the cross before the cross happened prophetically. And now as we look at the account, let's get ourselves in to the Passion Week. Let's understand what's going on. And then after we look at the account, we're going to consider the beginnings of the betrayal of Christ. We're going to see sin at work. We're going to see the spiritual war that is taking place. We're going to see the suicidal actions of both Satan and Judas. And then we're going to see God's sovereignty even over all this evil. So look at verse 37 of Luke 21. What a gift we have to have a perfect, infallible account of this last week of the Lord's life. And every day, he was teaching in the temple. But at night, he went out and lodged at the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Monday, he clears the temple and teaches. At the end of the day, he goes into the woods, the Mount of Olives, and hides out and sleeps there because it's not time to die yet. Tuesday morning, Jesus is running the temple now. <laughs> the crowds are waiting for him early in the morning. He teaches all day long. And then in the midst of the thousands and thousands of people that were there, in the midst of that crowd, at the end of the day, Jesus and His disciples would get sifted in the crowds. And where was He lodging? Where was He staying? He was staying at the Mount of Olives in the woods where people didn't sleep where they could be shuffled away in the crowds. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And then we see in verse 1 of chapter 22, now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. Now by the time... In Jesus' day, the Passover just, uh, uh, they were interchangeable. The Passover was a one day, uh, feast that, uh, took place on the 14th of Nisan. And this was the first month of the Jewish calendar. And then the seven days following that, uh, would be the feast of unleavened bread. But to speak of the Passover is to speak of the beginning of the feast that was going to take place. This was the biggest and, and in one sense most important feast in Israel. There was three major feasts. There was the Feast of Weeks, uh, which was at the end of the wheat 
harvest. Uh, sometimes it was called the Feast of Pentecost because it was 50 days after the barley harvest would be the Feast of Weeks. And that was in May or June. And the other major feast was the Feast of Tabernacles, or also called the Feast of Booths, or in gathering. This was at the time uh, in the fall, after the hot summer, they would gather the withered grapes and figs and olives, and it usually took place in September or October. And this was a time of celebrating the escape from Egypt when they lived in tents. So the Feast of Booths, they would go out and they would live in tents to remember how when God uh, saved them out of Egypt, uh, they uh, sojourned in tents. But on this Wednesday, it was time now to focus on the Feast of Un. Leaven bread. We're going to talk a lot about this next week, so I'm not going to say much more than that. Uh, and and so we see in verse two, the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Someone might say, "Well, here's how you do it: when he's standing up there teaching, you go take a sword and you take his head off. That's how you do it." But there was a dilemma they had. <laughs> there was crowds to hear him preach, and they were afraid of the crowds, and they were afraid of the people. They've already tried to make Jesus look stupid in front of the people because if they could get the people to turn on him, then they could just kill him publicly. But all those efforts failed, and so they have a dilemma. How are we going to kill him? They've been trying to kill him from the beginning of his ministry. Way back in Luke 4, when he began his ministry in his hometown, preaching in the synagogue, they tried to throw him off a cliff. All along, they wanted to kill him, but how would they kill them? Kill him. They couldn't kill him yet because it was not God's appointed time. We could do a study in the book of John how they attempted to kill him, but his hour had not yet come. They couldn't. You can't kill the Son of Man until God says it's time. The hour is not yet. And uh, so we see in verse 3 then, they're trying to figure out how to kill him in light of their fear of the people. Then in verse 3 we read that Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. The betrayer would come within this intimate group of disciples that spent three years with Christ. It reveals the heinous nature of the betrayal. It shows us the insanity of sin at the highest, most clear level. Someone who had so much fellowship with God Himself, so much teaching, so much witnessing of the miraculous, so much experiencing the self-sacrificial love of Christ for three years. 
And then we read that he went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the presence of the crowd. I got to tie my shoe. It's driving me crazy. All right. So to get our arms around the narrative, I just I I do want to bring in I I maybe do this more than I should, I want, but I want to I want to show us what John says. I want us I want you to feel why help help us answer the question of you know why does Judas do this? How come the timing? And what we read in John, beginning in chapter 11, and, and I, I'll, I'll just read some of this and make a few comments. I think, I think it'll come, the picture will come clear. Here's what we read. Many of the Jews, therefore, had come up, had come with Mary and had seen what he did and believed in him, raising Lazarus from the dead. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council together and said, what are we to do? So the chief priests the, uh, and the scribes and the Pharisees, so you have the Sadducees, which is uh, part of them is the chief priests, Caiaphas and Annas, who is the old chief priest but is still influential, they run the temple. And they're gathered against Christ. They want to kill him. He's taken over their business and their temple. He's harming them at the most important uh, time of the week. And then you have the uh, scribes who were kind of the theologians. Uh, and then you had the Pharisees were the ones that really had the strongest ministry to the people. The, the people really liked the Pharisees. They didn't feel quite as uh, taken advantage of as they did uh, from the Sadducees and the scribes. But they're all gathered together trying to solve the problem they have. All their problems are a little different. But the one thing they have in common is they want them dead. And so in verse 47 of John 11, it says, So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man per performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So, so think about what they're afraid of. They're afraid of the Romans are allowing them to have authority, place positions where they can have a good life, make money, and have authority over the people and keep the nation of Israel running. But if the crowd becomes too crazy about Jesus, maybe Rome will get nervous. Maybe uh, Caesar will become jealous and maybe they'll just wipe out everyone, kill all of us, take our power away. This is how they're justifying their actions. You know, what are we to do? This man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, 
Everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Here's what he's saying. Quit tiptoeing around. Go kill him. Kill him in public. You don't realize we're not going to have a nation if you don't kill him. You got to go kill him and take him out. And I think this is the turning point in their thinking. The dilemma to how to pull it off has been a struggle they haven't figured out yet. But Caiaphas says, isn't it better that he should die and the nation remains? God in his sovereignty, verse, verse 51 of John says, he did not say this of his own accord, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not only for the nation only, but also gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day, they made plans to put him to death. <laughs> don't, don't you love the sovereignty of God? As Caiaphas is saying, just kill him in public. It's better that he dies than the whole nation dies. That God takes that wicked high priest, but because he's the high priest of Israel, takes his wicked words and turns it into a true prophecy. <laughs> that Jesus would die on behalf of the nation. And you should take comfort in the fact that as you encounter evil, whether it's natural evil like sickness or moral evil like murder or persecution or whatever, that your sovereign God is perfectly in control even of these things. And I'm getting ahead of myself. But then we read in John 18, if you want to turn there, In John's account of our parallel account here, uh, John 18, 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, and there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. You see, as the council is meeting together, how are we going to pull this off? All right, we know we're going to kill him. We're becoming bold in that decision. Their greatest dreams come true. As they're counseling together, one from within the 12 shows up and says, you want to know where to find him at night? <laughs> well, yeah. How could you get any better than this? <laughs> one who knows where he goes after he teaches in the temple and where he hides out. That's why they have to come with lanterns and torches. They don't have street lights. 
They're in a place that no one knows except them. And Judas shows up. And here's how John, Matthew says it. You just got to hear this. Matthew 26.1 says this. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming, the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the place of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, uh, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. And then in verse 14 of Matthew 26, it says, Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and says, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. So Thursday night, when Jesus is celebrating the Passover with his disciples, Jesus is from northern Galilee. They counted the day from sunup, uh, uh, sunrise to sunrise the next morning was a day. Southern Jews counted it from evening uh, to evening. So the northern Jews would celebrate the Passover on Thursday. And the southern Jews would celebrate the Passover on Friday. So in Jerusalem, they would celebrate it on Friday. So when Jesus would die on Friday, he would die when the Passover lambs were being slaughtered in southern uh, Jerusalem. And so, back to Luke now. And we read in verse 5, they were glad and agreed to give him money. He shows up, how much will you give me? See, he's got a bargain. He's got to figure out how much he can give for Christ. And so as we look at this account, we, do, we, we, we want to ask basically four questions. How could Judas betray Jesus? The answer is sin. So we're going to learn something about sin. Why would he betray him? Three years with Jesus. All the miracles. All the selfless love. The friendship. All of the truth. All the opportunity. John MacArthur says, the only one that had as much opportunity as Judas would have been Adam. Fellowshipping with God every day in the garden, in a perfect environment. But here Judas has three years with Christ. Why would he do it? What? How would sin be deceiving his mind? And I think the answer is how sin deceives our minds and causes us to do crazy things is our desires begin to control us like a master. And I believe that Judas was probably 
when he was chosen and saw Jesus' popularity, he probably thought, this is going to turn out to be really awesome. I'm going to gain a lot of power. <laughs> He's going to be king. He's going to be the Messiah. I'm going to be the right-hand man of a king. I'm going to become rich. And, and he's watching these miracles. He's saying, oh yeah, I could see how this would work. I could see how he could take out the Romans. I, I, I can see how this is going to work out good for me. And besides, all along, people keep giving us disciples money and they chose me to carry the money bag and I just get to put some of that money in my pocket. The Gospels tell us that he was a thief. And so when Mary anointed Jesus with a year's worth, a, uh, a year's wage, cost of perfume, all at one time, broke it, put it on Jesus, preparing his body for death, what did Judas say? He hated it. That could have been given to the poor. And the scripture tells us he said that because he was a thief. He would have rather had the cash and then he could put that cash in his pocket. Jesus wasn't worth a year's wage. And so Judas loved money. He did an insane thing because he loved money. And as he watched Jesus' ministry and Jesus began to talk about his death and he kept predicting his death and he talked about self-sacrifice and the greatest among you will be the servant, he started looking at this and I think he started saying, look at how I've wasted three years of my life and this thing's going to amount in a dead Jesus. So, what can I get out of him? Here at the end, how much money can I put in my pocket before this whole thing goes down? When we seek idols, we won't love God and we won't love man. He wasn't the only one that walked away from Jesus. Luke 16, remember the rich young ruler? He went away sad because he had a lot of wealth. Because he loved money. Back in Luke 16, Jesus said, No one can serve two masters. He'll either hate the one or love the other, be devoted to the one or despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And then the next verse says, The Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed them. People walking away from Jesus because of idolatry, of stuff, money. Idolatry always causes us to do the unthinkable, insane thing that doesn't make any sense. The idols that you let live in your life will hinder your love for God, obviously. And they will hinder your love for the people you love most. The example I always give, 
If I'm watching a Vikings game, and as is often the case, they're not doing so hot, things aren't going good, one of my girls that I love more than anything in the world walks in front of the TV or is asking a question. Or, what? It's insane. But it's because of idolatry. See? Anything that gets between you and your idolatry, you'll run right over. It could be your wife. Be your best friend, could be your coworker. When you get angry and you run over somebody, you ask yourself, what am I wanting right now? Judas betrays Christ because he loved money. Back in Genesis 4, just considering sin for a minute. Remember when Cain killed Abel? And God said to him, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. You want to live, sin wants you dead. If you do well, you'll be accepted. If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It is desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. You want to know what happened right before Jesus or Judas betrays Jesus? Judas gets reprimanded by the Lord. Quit picking on Mary. She did a beautiful thing. All right, that's enough. You're going to reject me? You're going to speak to me like that? Fine. How much will you give me for him? See how scary sin is? Things don't go the way we like? Fine. Turn myself over to sin. Now, how do we rule sin? We know as Christians, we can only rule over sin through the crucified Savior who's died in our place. There is no condemnation for sin anymore. Who gives us the Holy Spirit? Who gives us the new birth? Who gives us the Word of God? It's not that Christians still don't struggle with sin. It's just that when you become a Christian, it's the first time in your life you can actually fight the battle. You have a choice. So do the flesh, so do the Spirit. Paul's talking to Christians when he says that. Before you're saved, you got a 40-acre field of flesh, which means your thoughts and your desires all get sowed into that field and corruption comes up. But once you get saved, you get another 40 acres. It's called the spirit field. When you sow to the spirit in Galatians, the context is you use your thoughts to believe the gospel. When you, when, when you believe God's word, the Holy Spirit's Words, he's the one who ultimately writes the scripture. You sow to the Spirit, and life fruit will come up. But Cain is warned in Genesis 4 to be careful. Because after 
you're not accepted, sin is ready to gobble you up. Sin is ready to take you down. Have you ever seen that in your own life? Someone else's life? It doesn't go the way you want, and finally you just kind of say, fine. (laughs) I'm sowing over here. It's not going the way I want. God's being unfair to me. So how could he do this? It's because of sin. In James 1, I can already tell you this is a two-part series, so if you're getting anxious, settle down. (laughs) Okay. James 1 says this. This is important to learn about this sin battle in your own life. In verse 12, it says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let the one who is tempted, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So when you're in the trial, be careful that you don't just say, oh, God's being unfair to me. This is his fault. God's tempting me. John says every good and perfect gift comes down from God. God isn't coming and tempting you with evil, but you're tempted with evil when you are lured and enticed by your own desires. The reason why Judas betrays Christ is because his own desires were for money and not God. And, and not Christ. Ultimately, you can't play, blame the devil. We're going to see Satan's work in a moment, but what you need to see is Satan's footholds in your life. The only foothold he has is in your old man, in your sinful nature. And when you say to your sinful nature, all right, old man, take over, satisfy the deeds of the flesh, well, then Satan can help you along the way. But as a Christian, obviously, we don't have to. We're no longer enslaved to that sin. Romans 6, we can put to death the deeds of the flesh, but it's a battle. Paul says, I have to die daily. (laughs) Meaning, he never once had a day where he could coast in that battle. I want to share one more pat verse with you uh, in thinking about uh, this topic. First Peter 5. Here's what Peter says. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that, that at the proper time He might exalt you. So it's, it's not the proper time yet for you not to suffer <laughs> and be exalted. Just know that, believers, okay? Casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you, 
Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your your brotherhood throughout the world. And after, after you suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who's called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. See the same principle there? You're going to suffer. Stand firm. Your restoring is coming. The devil, the devil's lies, lie is God doesn't care about you in your suffering. Your circumstances aren't working out the way you wanted. God doesn't care about you. Stand firm in the faith. You will be exalted. There will be the day when you won't sin anymore. You'll be confirmed. You'll be strengthened. So stand firm in the faith because not only is sin crouching at the door, but the devil is prowling around like a lion looking to gobble up sufferers that are feeling sorry for themselves and believing the lie that God is not good. You see how sin works? See how it worked in Judas's life? How he was deceived? Here's how Paul says in Romans 7, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. See, the purpose of the law of God was never given because God thought you could actually keep it. It was given so that you could say, oh, I need a Savior. <laughs> I'm sinful beyond measure. You show me the law, I'll break the law. <laughs> That's what I know living in this body of death. Is there any hope for Paul? Is there any hope for me? There's hope in Christ. First John 2.15 Do not love the world nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh. What could that be? Sexual desire. A wayward sexual desire. Sexual desire is a good thing in the parameters that God gives it. Gluttony. Drunkenness. Addiction to the phone to social media, pornography. Those are all lusts of the flesh. Now listen to what he says. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, that's envy. What don't I have? 
What do I think I deserve that I don't have? And the desires are the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. Pride of life is I want a high position, I want to be important. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So Judas took the choice. His choice was, yeah, I'll go for the money. I think if I have some money, I'm going to be satisfied. Here's the problem. The lie of sin, sin wants to destroy you. Satan wants to destroy you. How long did it take Judas to figure out that it was a lie? That it didn't satisfy? What does he do? He runs back. He throws the 30 pieces of silver back into the temple. And then he goes and kills himself. He didn't know Christ. He knew money didn't satisfy. Tried that. He knew he couldn't save himself. But what he didn't know is what God was doing, even in that moment, for guilty sinners that can't save themselves. See, the reason why no one can get to heaven by being good is because nobody desires God. Nobody. Nobody desires God. After Adam sinned and gave birth to sinners, what a person needs is their taste buds to change. And we can't give ourselves a new nature, but God can. Maybe you're sitting here saying, I don't think I could ever see myself not being totally enslaved to this or that sin. I don't think I could see myself loving God. Well, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God unto salvation. And that word salvation within that means the new birth. You can be born of the Spirit which means you get new desires, which means when you go taste sin, conviction comes and you say, you're convinced, this doesn't lead to life. I hate this. Who will rescue me from this body? Your taste buds can change. And Christian, if you've been down the road of sin way too far for way too long, I know that you've been long out of the Scripture and you've been long away from looking at what Christ has done for you. Because when you cling to Christ by faith, the Holy Spirit gives you spiritual power to fight. I know what it's like to stray. I know what it's like to go dry. But I can tell you, It's never a surprise anymore. You can always look back and say, oh yeah, I haven't been in God's Word. I've been stiff-arming the believers in my life. I've been hardening my heart 
holding bitterness rather than confessing sin and going to Christ. I'm pressing it away. So I invite you, don't mess around with sin. Its desire is to destroy you. But Jesus Christ went to the cross to bear your sin so that there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The punishment is gone. Hope is in the future. The time for exalting isn't right now. Bad things will still happen in this world. Yes, you're in a battle. You will be strengthened. You will be confirmed. You will be saved by Christ. So stand firm, believer. There is hope in Christ. Father, thank you for what Christ did. He bore our sin on the cross. Not only that, but he gives us new life, new spiritual life. We can actually sow to the Spirit now. (laughs) Father, in that new life, you give us new eyes to understand your Scripture and to see it. And Father, we all wish we would grow faster. Help us be diligent. Help us exhort one another. Father, I pray that there would be no one here that would say, I don't need Christ. I think I can do it on my own. Father, that is the lie of the devil. That is the deception of sin. And Father, for anyone outside of Christ, there is no goodness waiting them. There is no hope in the future, no matter how many fantasies and lies they tell themselves. Father, it'll turn out for them as it turned out for Judas. So would you be gracious to give them wisdom this morning that they would cling to Christ. Pray this in his name. Amen.